David and Jonathan kind of saying their final goodbye, and now David is fleeing. Saul's envy has reached a fever pitch, and he's now starting to not just um, enact violence towards David, but we saw in the last chapter, he almost killed Jonathan. And in Saul's house, David has just continued to serve and show up faithfully. And when Saul was not throwing a spear at him, David was able to occupy that space. But once that violence, that abuse, that lack of consistency and integrity reaches a certain boiling point, David's like, I got, I got to leave. And God blesses that. And maybe that's one thing to note right out of the gate before we even get to verse one, is that there absolutely is an appropriate time to flee from an abusive relationship, to flee from a violent relationship, <clears throat> to flee from a controlling relationship. And I mean, most of you are old enough to know that there are just some people who you just need to get away from, that your presence in their lives are, is only going to serve as a target for their spears. And so one of the subtexts of, of this is it's actually sometimes a very godly thing to say this environment, the context of this relationship is so, has become so toxic and abusive, the righteous thing to do is to flee. And self-preservation isn't, you know, isn't a cowardly, ungodly thing. We even see Jesus do that in John 10, 39. The leaders attempt to seize him, but it says Jesus escaped their grasp. So let's remember in a fallen world where some people can really be overtaken by self-centeredness and abusiveness, there is a time to escape abusive relationships. Now, David has been absent from this big feast for many days, so he's hungry, so he's like, I don't know where, I'm, I'm going to just leave, but I need some provision, and I need some form of defense, some weaponry for the road ahead, because if I'm going to create distance between myself and Saul, I've got to be ready for the long haul. I'm not going to be welcomed back into, this, in, into Saul's kind of sphere of uh, kingdom anytime soon. So in verse 1, it says that David went to Nob, which is a terrible name for a town, but it's one to two miles uh, from Jerusalem, and he goes to Ahimelech the priest because the tabernacle is there at this point. And Ahimelech trembled when he sees David, and he says, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And commentators are, it, it's not, we're not sure what the text is inferring. Either Ahimelech just thinks it's really weird that David would be by himself because David is a very prominent member of the royal court, so he wouldn't really go anywhere without some kind of royal entourage, even if it was meager, or that Ahimelech su suspects or knows or words gotten around or the rumor is that David's been out and about, hasn't been around, and now he shows up at, a, at Ahimelech's place and he's like, Oh boy, what's going on here? Either way, like he's nervous. And David says, oh, the king sent me on a, on a special mission and said, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. And as for the men who are with me, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. So like, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. So David lies and says the story, but he's on a secret mission. And he's going to go meet up with his buddies, but he just needs some supplies for the road. But the priest answered David, why, I don't have any ordinary bread. Um, however, there is some consecrated bread here, provided that the men have kept themselves from women. 
Now, depending on your translation, it'll be consecrated bread, or sometimes in an older translation, it'll say uh, sacred bread or the show bread. That's important to understand what that is. Um, in the tabernacle, on the inside, there's a little highlight there, call out, on the inner right side of um, the interior of the tabernacle was placed a table of showbread or consecrated bread. It was two stacks of um, bread, six stacks high, so 12 in total, and it was replaced every Saturday, every Sabbath. And the ritual presentation of bread in the temple of a deity was actually an ancient practice that many of Israel's neighboring nations uh, and pagan neighbors practiced. Those pagan nations practiced it as a way to cooperate and help the deity. You were literally providing bread, and in some cases bread and wine, to feed the deity so that they could be strengthened. So there was kind of a symbiotic relationship. But when God institutes this for his people, he says, oh, I, I'm not dependent on you. You don't, need, you don't need to feed me. This is for you. This is a reminder for you. And this is a way that the Levitical priests who don't own land, who can't farm for themselves, that they're going to be provided so that they can spend all of their time devoted to worshiping me. So this was about symbolizing God's provision for his people, specifically in the wilderness, where they go through the wilderness and God provides manna. He provides bread from heaven every day. And this is to be a reminder forever that God is the source of their provision. David says, yep, uh, the women have been kept from us. We're ritually pure. Um, going into battle was seen as a holy activity in Israel. So you couldn't have sexual relations. You had to, you had to be consecrated before going into battle. So David says, yeah, everything's on the up and up. Um, Verse 6, so the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day that it was taken. Now, um, depending on how uh, deep and wide your Bible knowledge goes, this might ring bells because there's an instance in the New Testament where Jesus is going through the grain fields with his disciples. The disciples on a Sabbath, the disciples grab, they pluck some of the heads of grain and begin to mill it in their hands. And the religious leaders are like, whoa, you cannot do that. It's the Sabbath. You're working on the Sabbath. See, you're a false teacher. You're leading people astray. Kind of a gotcha moment. And Jesus refers to this incident. And he says, oh, don't you remember when David was hungry and like starving? And he went and got the consecrated bread. And that's used by Jesus as a way to teach the religious leaders the higher principle that what God wants most is not ritualistic obedience. It's mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So in an instance where a life is at stake, we would never have someone come in and say, I'm starving. Oh, the only bread we have here is communion, but that's dedicated unto the Lord. So sorry. God's like, no, that's actually like, the Sabbath is given for man. These things are given for us. So we treat them respectfully, but whenever there's a tension point between um, allow, you know, you know, um, going beyond the letter of the law in order to sustain and save life, we do that. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day. So there's this third party that gets introduced. He'll come up in the next chapter. And he's been detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. So just make a little mental bookmark for next week. David asks Ahimelech 
Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was so urgent. And the priest said, well, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Eli is here. It is wrapped in cloth behind the ephod. If you, you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Ashish, king of Gath. Okay, that is a jarring uh, statement to read if you understand the context, which maybe we don't, because if you remember, um, Ashish was the king of the Philistines. And Gath is the hometown of Goliath. So this is years later, maybe even decades later, but there's no commentator that I read that really understands why David decides to go into the belly of the beast. <laughs> David's very infamous in Philistine territory, but he actually flee, flees to their king seeking refuge from Saul. He goes into the hometown of the giant that he slew with the giant sword that he used to cut off the giant's head. And I don't know if David's thinking like, oh, maybe it'll be like, we'll let bygones be bygones. But almost every commentator that I read say like, this is, this is hard to wrap our head around. Other than maybe David is playing the game of surely Saul, because he's a coward and he doesn't stand up to Goliaths, maybe he won't f chase me there. So I'll be safe. But then the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Remember that like top 100 hit that the Israelites made after David's victory? It had gone viral and it had actually penetrated Philistine territory and they knew the lyrics to the song. They were like, that's the song. Like I read, that's, that's about this guy. And notice they call David the king of the land. They don't acknowledge Saul as the king. So interesting things happening here. David took these words to heart, takes them seriously, and he's very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence, and while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman. He made marks on the doors and the gates. He let saliva drip down his beard. And the idea there is he's trying to obviously look insane because um, especially uh, at that time when very little was known about uh, mental illness and severe mental illness, there's a lot of superstition around what's happening to someone who's exhibiting um, antisocial and self-destructive behaviors. And so the king says to his servants, look at this guy, he's insane. Why did you bring him here to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? And there's kind of a comedic line in there where King Achish says, am I so short of madmen? Like he's saying, I've got plenty of madmen. Like, like the city is full of those. Why would you add to that? Like get this guy out of here, even if he is the king. Like this guy's insane. This guy's nothing but good, bad news. So he sends David away. And it's here that we learn, if you remember, if you look at this map, you've got the three major zones, the coastal plains, which are controlled by the Philistines, and the Shephelah in the middle, which is kind of like neutral no man's land territory. And then just west uh, of the Dead Sea, you've got um, the uh, Judean wilderness, and that was occupied by Israel. So 
David has fled from the wilderness, gone into the Shephelah, gone into the coastal area, but now he has to flee back. And now he's literally caught between a rock and a hard place. And we'll have to wait until next week to find out how that plays out. But David is learning really quickly there's no safe space for him. Life on the run is going to be really challenging, and it's not going to look like, oh, I just find a little safe house here, buckle down for 20 years, and then reemerge as king. Let's consider two lessons from this text. Uh, first one, really quick. Uh, training for life, God's tr- the way God trains us, and especially for leadership, is very rarely, if ever, maybe never, up and to the right. Meaning, when God's involved in our lives, when he's preparing us to do important things, great things in his eyes, the training for that is often never things get, builds, it builds, momentum builds, get a little bit awesome, and you're experiencing greater and greater degrees of success and breakthrough. That's kind of like the, the, the myth of progress that our society has, uh, kind of with a, a sort of baptized version of that. Oh, well, surely... If God is in our life, and God is blessing us, God is prospering us, and if God is prospering us, then that would always look like we get more money, we get more friends, we get more opportunities, we experience more and more joy. And, you know, part of the theme of the Bible is God often blesses and prepares us for great things by withholding what we see as prosperity, pausing it, and maybe taking us on a detour that from our vantage point looks like a actual detour, like the wrong direction. We're off track. But it's actually exactly where God wants us. And you can imagine what David's thinking here. Again, like, I've been faithful. I'm, I'm an anointed. Like, I'm entitled to be king. I've done nothing wrong. And yet, the more faithful I've been, the worse the circumstances around me have gotten. And now I'm, not, now I'm, now I'm a fugitive on the run. I have no place in Israel. I have no place with the Philistines. I'm isolated and alone. And yet from our vantage point, we look at it and as the story unfolds, you realize, oh, that's exactly where God wants David. Because there are certain things that God can only do in our lives through suffering, through hardship, through detours, through things that look to us like disorienting misdirections, disappointments, struggles, Sometimes we can fall into the temptation of thinking, if God is with us, then our life is going to kind of fully cohere and it's all going to come together. And for many of you, I know I don't need to tell you that that, that's just not true. We don't see it in any of the major people in the Bible. You know, and Jesus is a great example. And it's very rarely that case in our lives but especially those who God, are, God is preparing for leadership. There's just so many dark valleys and hard roads that you have to go on with God to be prepared as a leader. And it's not just like a one and done thing where it's like, well, these five years here, and then, it, then it'll be fine. It's a continual movement. And this is why I think Psalm 23 is important, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Leaders have to go into that valley pretty consistently in a cyclical nature. We have to go into the wilderness where God strips us of the things that we've come to depend on. And David's life, if we're expecting it to be God's blessing, God's provision, God's empowerment, God's enthronement, 
it looks really uh, 180 from that. It looks messy and chaotic and it looks dangerous. However many steps David has taken towards his God-given destiny, by the end of this chapter, it looks like it's all been wiped out. And he said to Jonathan in the last chapter, I already feel like I'm a step from death. And so it doesn't feel like he's being protected or guided or carried by God, but we're going to see that's exactly what's happening. And so we need to be careful not to judge God's faithfulness or care for us based on our perception of the present circumstances. That's where God trains us through the eyes of faith to say, yeah, the present circumstances are difficult. God's not trying to force us to deny that. But that doesn't mean that God isn't in it and God isn't using it and it's not critically important for our formation so that we can love better, lead better, be a more faithful witness for him at a different stage of our life. I took uh, my son Braden down to Kelowna this week because he has the same uh, corneal uh, PPCD, posterior polymorphous corneal dystrophy that I have, so we have to start kind of monitoring it every year now. And when the doctor was looking at him, he said, don't worry, technology's gotten a lot better. Um, he said a bunch of things just to kind of comfort Braden. And, and then he said, you know, your, your dad got a raw deal. And he said, you're not going to have to worry about that. And I talked to Braden this week and I said, do you remember when the doctor said that? And he said, yeah. And I said, I want you to know that's not how I see it. I don't think I got a raw deal. I think God prepared me through those trials and those traumas and those testings to be a better and wiser man and Christian and eventually leader and pastor. And I've had to trust him more deeply. I mean, I only have one eye now and there's, I, have, I carry no, there's no assurances with this eye. I could literally lose my vision for the rest of my life in two weeks, and there'd be nothing that anybody could do about it. So it's taught me how to trust God more deeply than I ever would have had I not gone, gone through that wilderness of, I think it was like seven surgeries between 10 and 21. So from a humanistic point of view, I got a raw deal, right? But through the eyes of faith, I look back and I'm like, God is preparing me. Hard, challenging lessons, but I also wanted to be a leader and do something important for God. And God says, absolutely, but I got to form you. If you want God to use you mightily, and if you're called to kingdom leadership to some capacity, then don't expect life to just be the snowball of momentum and ease and greater and greater prosperity. You will experience that at times because God is awesome and he blesses us like that. But there are also times where there will be intentional redirections and we don't want to resist those we want to learn how to say god this is hard i'm going to pour out my heart to you i'm frustrated by this i'm angry i wish it wasn't like this but not my will your will be done the second lesson is, is really a question and that is where do you flee in times of trouble this is one of the most life-threatening situations in david's life and what's the first place he goes to? What's his first stop? The sanctuary. Like This room is called the sanctuary. There's some overlap of values there, but it's the place where God's presence, God's presence is everywhere, but for Israel, the sanctuary was a place where God's presence is, is um, 
even more concentrated, as it were. And then the holies of holies, it's so concentrated, no one can go, go in there except for one day a year, and only that person, the high, highest priest. So that the sanctuary is a place of God's concentrated presence. That's where David turns to. And you can tell a lot about a person by what or who they turn to during times of trouble. That reveals a lot about what they think is the source of provision, salvation, deliverance, relief. And so what do you turn to during times of trouble? Who do you turn to? David runs to the sanctuary. But is that our first pivot? Is our first pivot to God? And I'll even, I'll be bolder and put even more of a finer point on it. Not just God in like an individual sense of like, oh, I'm going to turn to God in prayer. But actually showing up to the sanctuary and coming together with other believers. There's other places we can run to for refuge. Our friends, entertaining distractions, we can use alcohol or drugs or sex or other forms of pleasure seeking to numb out and just try and minimize or hide from our problems. There's no shortage of voices in our culture promising refuge from different storms that you're facing. And I just thought, am I turning to them first or am I turning to God? Because some of those things aren't bad. Like to turn to a friend or a parent or, um, you know, or, or an activity, like that's not necessarily a bad decision, but it shouldn't be our first pivot. The psalmist says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are safe. And sometimes when we struggle, when we're going through trouble, and I've certainly experienced this as a, as a pastor, is um, people avoid the sanctuary. They avoid God. And to put a finer point on it, they avoid coming to church. Because they're scared they're going to be judged for their troubles. They feel like they're failing as a father or as a mother or as a friend or in their marriage or they're having troubles with their kid or they're having addiction issues. And so the lie that they begin to believe is, well, I don't want to show up. No one else on Sunday has those problems or not nearly as bad as mine. So I'll wait until I get them figured out and then I'll feel more confident to re-engage, right? And that's the paradigm that kind of the enemy, I think Satan seeds in our hearts that says, yeah, the, the church is for people who have it together. The church is a museum um, uh, of, of, of saints. And the Bible again and again says, no, the church should be a hospital for sinners. It should be a space where if we're feeling on top of the world and everything's awesome and we feel close to God and our praise is just overflowing from our lips, we can express it here. But also if we're feeling overrun by doubt and weary and burdened and feeling like our life is falling apart and feeling like we're on the run. This is also a place that we should feel confident that we can come and not everyone's going to connect with that and it won't always be appropriate to share that widely with everyone, but that this is going to be a space that can hold everything in between those polarities. And I want to show you in this text why you want to avoid that temptation the next time it happens to say, I'm going to kind of step away from fellowship. I'm going to step away from church. I'm going to kind of, uh, I'm just going to avoid certain people in my life because maybe I'm too messed up and I, don't, I feel embarrassed and I don't know. I don't even know where to begin. 
I don't feel like I'm doing this Christian walk thing very well. Here's why you want to avoid that temptation. The sanctuary in this story, and I would also say, I've seen it pastorally, the gathered worship of God's people on Sunday. Look what, get, look what David gets in the sanctuary. He gets provision, and he's equipped. He gets sacred bread and a weapon, one-of-a-kind weapon. Remember, David says there's, there's nothing like it. There's only one of Goliath's sword. And God, David pivots to God. He goes to the sanctuary, and God, through Ahimelech, provides him with food for the journey and a weapon for the journey. It's going to be a hard road ahead. He needs both. When we come on Sunday morning, it's the same thing that God is willing to provide us. He wants to give us provision, sacred bread. Right? That's what communion is. Communion is being able to access bread that you actually don't qualify for based on your own righteousness or merit, but because of what Jesus has done, you're allowed to come and feed on him in your heart and to know that he is providing for you, he is walking with you. And we're also equipped. We're also equipped for, with a weapon unlike any other. David desired Goliath's sword because it had no equal. And Ephesians 6 says, you should take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then in Hebrews it says, because the Word of God is living and active, it's actually sharper than any two-edged sword because it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And this is why most churches, when they're at their best, when they're most faithful, when they're strongest, tend to emphasize two things. Feasting on Christ through bread and prayer and communion and equipping ourselves with the Word of God. And that's why it's important when you're going through troubling times to not avoid the sanctuary, but to actually draw near. David doesn't avoid the sanctuary in his time of trouble because it's the place God provides and equips him in a special way, and it's the same for us today. So this morning, I want you to hear Jesus' invitation to those of us who are on the run, those of, us, those of us who are experiencing times of trouble, hardship, where it feels like the story that we find ourselves in is like, this is not the story that I, like, I guess I know God is with me, but I thought it would be like way better, way easier, way more fill in the blank than this. Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And I want you to take my yoke upon you. I want you to learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to speak for a moment to those who may be running, but they're not running from trouble. They're actually running from God. Because this happens too. In the same way that David could have avoided the sanctuary, we kind of avoid the sanctuary. There's people who avoid, they run away from God. Because they think they've done something so wrong, so shameful, so irredeemable, so bad, that God is the one chasing them in order to execute condemnation. 
And if that's the way you feel, you need to understand that's a lie and you need to understand you're actually running in the wrong direction then. You need to turn and run towards Jesus. Jesus is called a friend of sinners. He's the bread of life that offers grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it. He's not the king holding a spear just ready in a moment of flared up interior chaos and anger to throw it at you, to punish you, to be vindictive. He's the king who absorbs the violence into himself so that you can find mercy and grace. And that's why he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and that means you don't need to fear condemnation from him regardless of what you've done. In him all of your sin and shame and guilt can be forgiven. You don't have to earn it. In fact, you can't earn that forgiveness. You just have to receive Christ into your heart and then let healing and restoration begin. Like David in this passage, I'm sure I'm talking to people, whether online or in person, that are under a heavy load, that feel boxed in, that feel pressed down under various vocational and emotional and relational or spiritual circumstances. I want to ask you, are you running to Christ for life-sustaining provision and protection? And are you allowing him to arm you for the battle ahead by learning to lean on his word? Let's take a moment to pray. God, teach us to run to you. Teach us to turn to you, to pursue you, to go to the sanctuary. And as we come, God, provide for us and equip us for the road ahead. And may we find fellowship here. May we find those who are willing to walk the road with us. Maybe it's only one or two. But bring alongside us Jonathan's and mighty men and women who will walk and fight with us. Amen.